10 million slime and alcoholics. I'm most grateful to be here and, uh, and for the privilege of being here. I'm grateful to Carol for inviting me and to Steve and Peter and other members of the committee for making me feel so very welcome at this amazing and powerful weekend. Uh, you know, you probably didn't guess that Barney, Beverly, and I are members of the class of 72 together. <laughs> and uh, we received the gift of sobriety in the same home group. And early on, Barney uh, distinguished himself as the quintessential reader of Chapter 5. <laughs> and I'm most grateful for that because that's a large part of what kept me sober. And we grew up together. And uh, as an Alcoholics Anonymous all over the place, we don't prepare talks. I don't have a slideshow. I don't have a script. Never know what I'm going to say. So that always makes me nervous about an hour before a talk. And Beverly always reminds me that I am the message. And, uh, and I said it. I am uh, Marilyn Sater. I'm an alcoholic. And this amazing fellowship has kept me sober for over 22 years now. So I can suffer cardiac arrest and be carried out. And the message has already been given. And... Uh, Everything else is just an elaboration of that basic message. And um, it's really true. By saying that I'm an alcoholic, of course, that means I'm going to die drunk and cause a lot of harm in my way. Um, the convention, this roundup, has been a great testimony to that fact. Uh, the damage that we can cause is pretty amazing. And yes, uh, there's something so powerful in this fellowship that I haven't had to practice my disease for maybe 22 years. Truly amazing. When I uh, first came into the fellowship, I was pretty confused. And there was a, one of those kind of AA cliches about coming. And long after that, coming to, and then a long time after that, coming to believe. So I had come in uh, February 8, 1972. I seem to be coming through around Christmas time. So my journey has been a slow one. And those were early memories. There was a Christmas tree and uh, my three little children. And there were presents under the tree because my mother had come to visit and a grandma was there. And I can remember my little son David opening 26 Christmas presents. And then he burst into tears. And my mother said, David, why are you so sad? What's wrong? He said, because I didn't get the kid I always wanted. He said, well, what is that, David? He said, I don't know. I just know I didn't get it. <laughs> that was one of the first things I heard as I came to. And I thought, yes, the story of my life. That's how it only felt. And I blamed Ohio for a long time. Too much crying. I left Ohio seeking, I wasn't even seeking happiness. I just wanted to be rid of the pain and, and the anxiety that, that living produced for me. And uh, Ohio was a pretty place with happy people, and that made me even more nervous. Happy people have, have always made me pretty tense. And, um, and I'd lie out in the, the field, and... Uh, and I'd look up at the stars, and there were billions and billions of Carl Sagan's eggs. And just thought, man, this is, this is a big universe. 
And this is a small planet, and people are smaller still. And what's it all about? Now, I come from a long line of proud atheists, so we don't ask questions like that around the house. It's considered bad form. And, uh, and I just think it's, it's interesting that this is called a, a spiritual meeting, and here I am from a line of proud atheists, and proud to be an atheist for a long time, uh, delivering a spiritual message. Well, I hope to deliver a spiritual message. <laughs> but anyway, our meeting, of course, is a spiritual meeting, as we all know. And so I was a budding atheist uh, lying in the fields looking up the skies and, and just thinking, what, what are we here for? And the best thing I could come up with is life is hard and then you die. So I didn't have a whole lot of hope in Ohio. But I went off to the big city, and by this time I had learned uh, an escape from pain, and that was to disappear into books. And I liked science. Looking back on it from the perspective of several years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I see that that was my higher power for a long time. And it did a lot of the things that we come to expect from our higher powers. And that is, it, uh, it promised to give me answers about life. What is our purpose here? It could give me a sense of purpose, too. If I could learn to be a scientist and do science, it would employ me and take care of these things we expect from God, namely security and shelter and paycheck. Uh, uh, so it, it was pretty good there for a while. So I went off to the big university to study. And, uh, and I went into the University of Chicago, and there were those hallowed halls. And... Uh, and yeah, I ended up in a room with another person. And she was like somebody from Ohio, happy, waking up in the morning. And, oh, it's going to be a good day. How's it going, Marilyn? What did you expect from me? How's it going? What kind of a question is that? Made me very nervous. And I thought, well, she's a liberal arts major. She's not a scientist. And that's all the way but I went to get a job in a, at the Fermi Institute, and it was my kind of place because I walked down the hall and there was a picture of a great big particle accelerator, and then a picture of the Andromeda Galaxy, and I thought, yes, I'm among friends. Things I know and love. And, uh, and in order to get the job, I had to take a test involving a microscope, and a tall, pale fellow came out. He was so pale that he looked like he had been in a library all of his life. And he just had puffed up, pitched all over, and it just puffed out in a wonderful aura. And, uh, and he gave me the test, and I watched his long, white, slender fingers turning the knobs of a microscope, and I was getting all excited. And I passed the test and went to work there, and, uh, and my life took a turn for the better. And here was somebody who sat and he, he began to talk about children as equation. And he went off to Washington and sent me a postcard and it said, No, and I was, I was thinking about what you were talking about, but all I can come up with is, and then he just laid out an elegant partial differential equation. And I just thought, No man has ever talked to me like this before. Now, he hadn't met anybody like me either, mind you. And, uh, and we got married. <laughs> and I thought, now this should be right. Finally, I'm starting to study science. I've even married a real scientist. And, and I should be a happy person. 
that you'd start the day out with Dragon Bell polynomials or something like that, and it was starting to wear a little bit thin. And, <laughs> and then one day we started talking about gravitational force after a couple of weeks, and uh, I said something, and he said, that's silly. And he whipped out some elegant equations and took me to scene. Now, I'll tell you, life has always been painful, but it's a true pain when I'm publicly humiliated. Don't like that at all, no. And uh, I felt deep humiliation there, and I started speaking and screaming. And uh, we just stopped talking to each other for, I think it was about 13 years. And, uh, and, and that is another thing, you know, time to get some insight in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I went through life uh, without people yelling and screaming at me, which generally took me pretty gently, and it's only in these later years that I've had a clue about that. You can yell and scream at me once, and then I never talk to you again. And uh, so my circle of friends got ever smaller as the years went by, because uh, that kind of thing terrifies me. If anybody humiliates me, or yells at me, or dusts me, or criticizes me, or says an unkind word to me, I would like to just say no more. I will retreat just a little bit farther back into fear. Of course, into fear. And that's what I did with Bill. He was not too disturbed by that because he loved physics, and he went on doing science very well. And um, we just uh, kind of passed each other in hallways, and... Uh, we had a cat that saved the day because I could say to Abelard, our cat was Abelard, and uh, Abelard asked Phil to pass the salt, and he could say, Abelard asked Marilyn if she'd like some pepper, too, and it worked, and we, we came to California with the cat that seen us in the car, and, um, and I was getting closer to my goal. By this time, I looked like a scientist. I was working in a lab with a white lab coat, and and it even had holes in it, some acid things. And I, and, uh, and I thought, I, I should start feeling good one of these days. But here I was at home with a stranger by this time. And, uh, and I was in a lab, and they'd do that, that thing to me. They'd walk in in the morning, and they'd look up, and somebody would say, Hi, how are you? They're after me again. I kind of pull my lab coat off and hunker down and my nerves would jungle for a couple of hours and then I'd get into work and uh, and I was realizing that I looked like a scientist but now there was something else that was causing even more anxiety and that feeling that I am not a part of things and that was that I now was feeling like a fraud. I said I, I almost looked the part now. But I thought it's only a matter of time before they see through me and know that I just can't do any of this stuff. And I was working on a muscle biochemistry project, and uh, I just thought that that's, that's going to do it for me. If I can work so hard and just do super science, then, then one day I might get the Nobel Prize, and then I'll be a happy person, because finally I will get some respect. I just felt like Rodney Dangerfield all my life. I just don't get no respect, and I just went around feeling that way, and yet I thought that that would do it. And in those days, it would say, well, what would convince you, Marilyn, that, that you did fit in, that uh, you had the love and respect of others? And, and I'll tell you, what I, I wanted was, uh, a, you know, a room like this, and if I would come in that door, all activity would stop, and there would be a murmur 
shakings became an intense technicolor. It's truly a glow, yes. And, uh, and uh, it was meltdown time. Flush the glass wall, just melted down. And I was speaking the same language as everybody else there and singing the same songs and dancing the same dances and nobody else was dancing, but it was just wonderful. And I felt like a real scientist. And, um, and so you can see that if something could provide what I was looking for, I mean, it just was getting close to that present number 27. I never did get just what I always wanted, but that was awfully close. It was peace of mind that good old brain just mellowed out. And, uh, and I felt like I had a sense of purpose. I am a scientist. I felt that I had this the love and respect of the people around me. They, they all seem to be glowing there together. So with such a magic thing as that, you can see that I was not so stupid. I was arrogant and pretty silly, but I knew enough to just bring lots of that stuff into the lab. I lived in the lab. My husband lived at work, and uh, so that was the home that I knew. And, uh, and it was just something that told me I can't stack that stuff up on my desk. 17 cases of beer. So I had to uh, change my my experiment a little bit. You see, I was working on the biochemistry of muscle, so I wrote into my proposal the biochemistry of muscle at low temperatures. So I could move all that stuff into the cold room. And I worked on this refrigerated room with lots of shelves and lots of cases of beer. And, um, and already I had the respect of my colleagues there. I'd come in in the morning and I'd put on a great big parka and pull open that refrigerated door. And already I could just see the admiration in their eyes. That man, mm, working all day long in the cold. And I'd sigh nobly and go in and slam the door shut and pop open the cans of beer. And I enjoyed my work. The Nobel Prize was that close. And, oh. I tell you, I would be sitting there right now had uh, not a, a revolting development come up in my life. Uh, years went by, two or three, and one day the director said, Marilyn, it's time to write it all up now. Just what you've been doing here. And that was about ten days worse than how are you. And, uh, and I, I was saying to myself, let me just think. I've got to think about this. So I went home and I sat on my couch for about three months. I couldn't think of a good explanation for what I'd been doing there. And um, I had gotten a lot of fifth hands in, a lot of empties out, but it wasn't going to fly as a biochemistry project. And um, so I just mailed the keys back after several months went by. And... Uh, took the phone off the hook and, um, and sat there. And um, there was a lot of light in the house, even though I drew the blinds. And so I retreated in my garage. It was darker and cooler there, and I could sit on the floor. And I had thought that it was science that had given me that joy, that sense of purpose, that delight in being alive. It was, of course, alcohol, and in those days, any alcohol would do. There was uh, lab alcohol available uh, in a metal cabinet, and you could mix it with the vending machine 7-Up and have quite a nice evening. And uh, <laughs> so much joy, so much fulfillment, and it was all over. Clients had given it to me, it had taken it away from me. I knew I could never work again. And uh, 
So I just retreated to my garage, and I just sat there. And as in the days in Ohio, I became philosophical again. And I just looked at the floor thinking, what is it all about? And in those days, I, I noticed that there were a lot of ants in our garage. Again, that's something that uh, the clarity of sobriety has allowed me to figure out. You see, by this time, my aim was very bad. And I'd open a can, and half the time it would go down my back and fall on the floor and evaporate, leaving behind complex sugars. The ants were coming in for a feast every day. And I saw them coming in in these trails, and I said to myself, these little fellows, they know how to do it. They've got friends and jobs and simple creatures. They're simple creatures, and I missed it all. Now, I said, I, I said, I just have no memory of communication with my husband at all in these bleak and terrible years. However, our house was filling with little children, and they seemed to be mine. <laughs> I was very confused by this time. And, uh... And my husband was working long hours, going out at 7 in the morning, coming back at midnight, and I felt like I got to get in the house and took care of these little children. And I just, for a long time, I didn't even remember these years, and I realized that it wasn't just the blackout drinking, the gray out, so much as the pain of remembering, because these were really terrible times. I came out of the blackout, uh, and Paul Harvey's voice was calling out in the background, we find that women alcoholics go downhill faster than men. They have about 10 years before the first drink and the time they institutionalize. And I was counting. And as he was saying that, I was holding my infant daughter and trying to shield her head from the wall as I bounced off of it. I was just trying to get from one room to another. And there was this little one. And there were other little ones. We had three of them during these years. And, um... And I'd come out of a blackout in a car, driving around, going after something to drink, and little ones would be crying in the back seat. And I'd come to in a car, having thrown up in the car, and little ones crying in the back seat, or sometimes no little ones. And there were the children, and I was out in the car throwing up. Not happy years. And by this time, I began to see, as crazy as I was, that this is not good. And there was one time that little, my son David was out in the yard and I saw him and I, this is one of those days and I said, I'm not going to drink today. I'm going to clear my mind. I'm going to cut back on my drinking and I'm just not going to drink at all. So I was a little bit cranky that morning. But I looked out the window and there he was and he had broken a car and he was just a teeny little guy and I ran out and I started shaking and screaming, I'd like to kill you. I wish you were dead. And the poor little guy just fell on the ground and cried and cried. And I slunk off to the garage and said to myself, I am a monster. I've got to stop living like this. My husband had surely begun to notice because half the time I was passed out on the floor in the car when he came home and uh, often with cuts and bruises all over. And um, he said a couple of times, you've got to stop doing this. And I didn't seem to hear him. So he's a man of action, and he moved his mother in. And she really noticed. And um, <laughs> it's just another one of those patterns uh, that I've observed in Alcoholics Anonymous. But it's just, I didn't like her very much. Um, and I certainly did not have a theological bent, as I told you. Uh, 
but I thought she was Satan incarnate. Big red tail just curling out from under her robe. And uh, one day she said to me, Marilyn, unless you stop drinking and unless you get control of your life, we're going to take the kids away and you'll never see them again. And I thought, she has her nerve talking to me like this right in my own garage. It's and I began pushing the Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and as I said, I just feared and loathed my mother-in-law. And yet, um, I have come to see that one of these very scary things has turned out to be one of the greatest blessings in my life. Had it not been for her encouragement, <laughs> um, I might not have ever made it here. And, uh, and she died is not important to me by this time. My life is worthless and terrible, but I could have caused such terrible damage to the kids at home, and I was certainly damaging them minute by minute by that kind of living. And uh, it's likely because of her that, that that stopped eventually. But I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and the first time I came in, I was introduced to this big, awfully specific group with happy people and threesomes and foursomes and hi, Marilyn, how are you? Except this is not for me. I had always been fearful, but a lot of years of garage drinking. Darkness added on to that basic fear. I mean, coming out light and sober was not a happy time for me, I'll tell you, with happy people. And, um, and I tried to learn the secret. Uh, don't take that first drink. I wanted to learn the secret and then just go and practice it in the quiet of my garage. I wanted to learn Alcoholics Anonymous as a spectator sport. And, uh, and of course it didn't work. Uh, I watched her, and I watched the person named Marion W. from afar. She was a, a radiant being. She just seemed to glow from the inside out, and I was always too fearful to approach her, but, uh, but I watched her. And since I was such a, an ignorant and arrogant and self-willed, young riot kind of person, it just didn't work for me. And I went home and drank until alcohol beat me down so much that uh, one day I, I raised the white flag. And I loved this scene of uh, this roundup, surrender to win. That felt so terrible to get to that point. You see, I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous while I was out there going to any lunch to practice my disease. And, uh, and I kept saying to myself, if it ever gets bad enough, I guess I can turn myself into those fanatics. Now, I was doing nothing but garage drinking and upsetting my mother-in-law who had to live with us to take care of our children. But you see, from that point of view, I felt like a free spirit, just contemplating the ants and thinking if it ever gets bad, there's always a place to go. Um, I felt like I had a lot of freedom. What I chose to do with my freedom was sit and drink all day long. But it felt like freedom while I was drinking. AA looked like a fanatic organization. But uh, one day I came out of it blackout. My mother-in-law was there attending with children, and I was looking at a person named Marina. She was somebody who was playing a 12-step call on me. Now, when you come out of a blackout, and somebody's talking to you about Alcoholics Anonymous and implying that you made a call, that's a real surprise. Um, 
And she stayed with me that day, and uh, so she said, take me to a meeting. And I said, well, okay. Uh, but don't take me to the Pacific group. You see, I'm a quiet person. I'm a scientist, and I need quiet areas. And uh, she said, that's fine. There are many, many meetings. This is Los Angeles here. Many, many different kinds of areas here. And I said, do you know somebody named Marion? No, she didn't know Marion. But she said, if I come back, I might find her. She's still sober. And so I went off, and uh, my head hurt a lot. And I had encouraged Lorena to go away and let me rest. And she said, no, you can rest. Uh, how could you want to? It's awful hard to get out the beer while I was from the program, sitting there in the living room. So by the time I got to the meeting, my head was pounding, and I wanted to sleep. And thank God she took me to a dark, quiet meeting, so I got in some and fairly good sleep during the first half. And then at coffee break time, uh, I was chuckling and uh, I was pounding again and what am I doing here? This is horrible that it's come to this. I wonder where Marion is. I wonder if I could ever meet her. Oh, this did quiet down. And pretty soon it was settling down again. I felt good. I can go off to sleep. And then I heard the leader say, and I... Uh, Main speaker tonight is Marion W. And I looked up and there, there she was, this radiant Marion. And she told my story and I heard it. And I heard the path she had been like me. And then I knew that she had some kind of joy, kind of contentment, a sense of fulfillment that I couldn't even imagine possible that a human being could have. And I did what and she saved my life. I said, Marion, Will you be my sponsor? And she said, I'd, I'd be happy to. It's, it's a privilege to do that. Now, of course, next day of the meetings that I go to, and you've probably guessed it, she circled the meetings of the Pacific group. And I said, Marion, that's not for me. I'm, I'm a scientist. And I need a quiet kind of AA where they understand people like me. And besides, I can't go back there because once I went there a few years ago and... And they, they told me if I kept on doing what I was doing, I'd drink again. And you see, I did drink again, but not just because they were right, but, but you see, I, I can't go back there. And she said, I really understand now, and I understand a lot about pride. And um, I don't know what gave me the willingness to say anything is fine, Marion, anything is okay. I will go along peacefully. And I, I sort of picked the first three steps in a primitive sort of way that night. I certainly, by being there, I was admitting that I can't lift this myself. I am powerless over alcohol. I couldn't control my drinking. And I couldn't even stay stop drinking because the pain of not drinking overcame me. And I just tried just a little bit to take the edge off. I couldn't stay stop drinking. I had to give up. And of course I had come to believe because I saw Marion, Marion, a creature of light, who told a story like my own, a story that I believed, and she had been there, and it wasn't like that for her anymore. I believed enough to say, in the way that I first took the third step, anything, Marion, because you see, I was turning my will in my life over to something outside of myself, something that I recognized as more powerful than myself. I had no power. I had nothing that was working for me now. And it meant being desperate enough, I guess, being beaten down enough, because 
that was just the beginning of about three years of a lot of pain. Sobriety was not pretty for me. It was not fun. And yet, I was at the end, and I had made the surrender. The surrender made it all possible. And Marilyn at first uh, began to talk in a way that was frightening me. She said, come a half hour early to one of these big meetings. Can't do that, Marilyn. People think I'm weird, and they don't like me, and I don't like them. I'm afraid of them. And she said, come, I'll be with you. So I did. Let's go up and talk to these people. And it was a threesome, a dreaded threesome. So I sighed, and I stepped off and said, Hi, I am a scientist. I could have predicted the reaction. I just turned and went away and formed other threesomes. And, but I could go back to say to Marion, you see, they don't like me. They think I'm weird. I'll never fit in here. This is enough. Marion, remember, I'm with you. Just go off and tell them how long you've been sober. Say your name and how long you've been sober. Okay? I walk up. I'm Marilyn. I've been sober for two days. And they came toward me and they smiled. And I could say anything after that. And they just said, keep coming back. Keep coming back. I heard it a thousand times in that year. And, um, and I had begun to trust Marilyn. And I said, how is it, Marilyn, that you have answers for me when, when I don't seem to have answers for myself? I mean, I think about myself 24 hours a day. And you probably only think about me maybe 9 or 10 hours a day. But how is it? How is it? And, and she just laughed. She always laughed when I talked to her. And she said, oh, Marilyn, we're so much alike. That's how I know what's going to work for you. But it was a great kind of comfort, you know. And uh, she even told me the answer to that thing that had baffled me all of my life. And that is, what do you say when somebody says, how are you? I asked her, and she, and she laughed. And she said, oh, Marilyn, that's, that's just a form of greeting. Now, remember, this is Alcoholics Anonymous, so nobody cares. And, 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 so all you have to do is say, fine, how are you? Let's try it. And I tried it, and we got around to the magic words, how are you? And I said, fine, how are you? And she started talking. I talked. I looked at other people, and I saw them looking at us, and I thought, they think I'm a human being. They think I'm in a conversation with another person. And she said, how did to get back to Marion? And I told her about it, and she said, well, good. What did she say? <laughs> and then Marion gave me another wonderful turn. She told me about self-obsession. And, um... And I began to understand why I had never been able to have a conversation with another human being. I had been thinking about myself all of my life. What do you think that I'm thinking? What do you think of me? What should I say next? I could monitor so well that I didn't even notice that you walked away. <laughs> and Marion began to teach me to listen because she gave me quizzes. And uh, I had to start tuning in. And... Uh, Early on in sobriety, the leader of the group, Blanky I, uh, sort of singled me out for a little bit of advice. And um, that's what happened at a party uh, for Carol's probably third birthday. And uh, I didn't even think he knew my name. But uh, 
But he has kind of a strange way about him sometimes. And he just walks off and started off the conversation with, Marilyn, the trouble with you is. And you just don't expect a high compliment when somebody starts a conversation like that. And, uh, and he told me something in his firm way. And it was that you're making your case want to be different. Why don't you just try to be like other alcoholics? Don't try to be cleverer than other people. Don't try to earn people's respect. Just try to do what everybody else is doing. And it just scared me. It scared me that he would talk to me like that. It was public humiliation. That thing that I hated so much. And Beverly was stuck in the room. She said, call me when you get home. We'll talk about it. I really wanted to go home and end it all. I thought, this is the most terrible thing. Here I am, sober. I'm trying. And this situation, this leader in the group, singles me out for humiliation. And here's my pattern. When he did that to me, I stopped talking to Francie for 17 years. I showed him. Now, he didn't notice, but, <laughs> but it meant something to me. And uh, But that was what I have had done for so many years. If you say something strange to me, I just stand way back and uh, try not to let it happen again. And uh, so Beverly was going to talk to me that night for many hours, until the wee hours of the morning, and I said, I want to kill myself. This is too horrible. I can never go back there again. And uh, she just said, suicide's not an option for us. Drinking is surely not, but I don't think suicide is either. And we talked about that, and kind of concluded, without any evidence, but we concluded that uh, we can commit suicide, but we're just going to have to start all over again. Be farther back. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. And, okay, I hang in. And uh, the next day she called. She was still alive, man. Yep. I'm glad to... I'm going to kill myself today. And I need somebody to talk to. She said, no, Beverly, suicide's not an option. Mm-mm. He did that for uh, many, many days and years. He still did it. <laughs> but, but God, with God's divine providence, has, or somehow, something has always seen fit that when she's up, I'm down, and vice versa, we've never been down at the same time otherwise, he would have formed a suicide path, gone off the cliff like lemmings, and uh, so it's worked. He's always been fitter up when I'm down. And uh, Marion gave me uh, two things. She gave me entrance into the fellowship by just teaching me to get interested in other people and listening to them, hearing my own experience, strength, and hope. And in that conversation with Beverly about suicide, that opened the door because I began to speak from the heart. I have gotten so desperate enough that I have let you know who I am. And that's the beginning of friendship. I missed it all of my life. I'd been off to the university, and I'd read books, but I didn't know how to have a conversation with another human being. I didn't know the first thing about normal living, and I was learning it in Alcoholics Anonymous. Marion was giving me another thing, and that was a program of my very own. She encouraged me to take the steps, and I said, but this God thing, I, just, I don't know what to make of that. I'm an atheist. And uh, she said, just give lip service to it and write an inventory. Now, of course, I... I was glad to start in and write, write my inventory because I got pen in hand and I wrote a searching and fearless moral inventory of my mother-in-law. And Marion, Marion indulged me. She even listened to that whole thing. 
and uh, he smiled and suggested that I'll probably have to write some other inventories. But uh, the thing that was so amazing was that she began to get me to see my part in this whole sordid relationship. And uh, she began to open the door of willingness so that I could see that she actually came in and rescued her family. And pretty soon she was suggesting that I write a letter of amends to her. And I just thought, wait a minute, because that's going to give her so much power over me. If I apologize to her, she will really have control of me forever. She'll have so much more power than she already has. And I was still afraid of her. But because I was desperate, because I had seen my will in my life as a chameleon, I wrote the letter and uh, I said, I'm sorry for anything that I did that harmed you. Because, you see, I began to realize that, uh, that there were those moments. One time in particular, we were all in the living room and, uh, and my mother-in-law leaned toward me and said, Marilyn, what is wrong? They've always thought of you as such a nice girl. And I just felt the rage, I thought, I am a scientist. How dare she touch me like that? And I just leaned forward and I slitted my eyes and I said, Well, I've always thought of you as a self-righteous bitch. <laughs> I had to remember those moments and I, and I wrote the letter and, uh, and that was a real surrender. And, Lo and behold, she wrote back to me. She answered my letter, and she apologized for her part. Just amazed. And she said that she had always just wanted to be accepted, just for whom she was. Worse than all, she said. And I thought, my gosh, my mother-in-law is saying that. We began to speak the language of the heart. And uh, she didn't become best friends if she lived 3,000 miles away. That, that helped. And... Uh, and so we wrote letters, and, uh, but in these later years, she's got a, another in-law, a son-in-law, who's a bad alcoholic, practicing his disease in full color, and uh, I've been able to tell her about Al-Anon, and that's given her such comfort. And uh, so we've almost come full circle with that. I talk proudly about being an alcoholic and the benefits, the great joy in my life that has accrued from that. And uh, who would have thought? Just starting with that amends letter, that it could have thrown into that. And um, I wanted to go to work so badly. And I knew I could never work again after that, after those days in the lab and walking out like that. And Marion said, and other people, when it's time to go to work, there'll be a knock at the door. Right now, you've got to make amends to your family and get acquainted with your husband and your children. She suggested that I pray, because I just felt like I don't know my husband. Um, there were a few accounts, an early outing, we went down to the beach, and the wide open spaces just about did me in, and I uh, was sitting there on the sand, and it felt like sand flies, and sticky, and sun, wide open spaces, and I, and the kids were rocking in front of us, and Bill was sitting next to me, and I just blurted out, life is so hard, why even stay alive? And after about a minute, he said, why not? Now, that's not sparkling dinner conversation, but it was a beginning. We were beginning to talk. But then I went overboard. I wanted to get to the bottom of this relationship. And Marion said, try to be a good AA. Just be polite to Bill. Be kind to him. And, uh, and then try to be a good AA. But I wanted to have a heart-to-heart talk with him. And, uh, 
And after 13 years of not talking, I just said, do you love me? And he looked at me and said, I don't know what that means. And I was heartbroken. And uh, I said, well, well, you're my husband. And I mean, it's that, it's a warm feeling inside. And, and, and he said, I don't know how to quantify that. And I said, well, I'm in this fellowship and they're going to ask me to go to any lunch. I guess I'm just asking you if you'll stand by me for that. And he said, I can't say that. And I was heartbroken. And so alone and so frightened. And I said, that makes me sad. I just, I feel so scared and so alone. And he just smiled and he said, I'm here today. And I called Marion and I wanted to report this terrible conversation. My husband doesn't love me. He says horrible things to me. Well, what did he say? And I related the conversation and she said, Marion, he is such a spiritual being. He's here today. You're not there today. <laughs> and, um, and then she let me begin to understand that there are no guarantees. We have a relationship with one another today. Let us fully enjoy this moment. That's what we have. And, uh, and I was beginning to learn that. Bill already seemed to know that. And, uh, and I was beginning to get acquainted with him, like I talked to people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And slowly, ever so slowly, things were starting to happen. But I could still see him inside the house playing with the kids. And he seemed to be happy. And the kids were starting to smile. And he read stories to them. And again, there was that wall between me and my husband. I began to say a prayer to a God that I didn't even believe in. If you're there, please let me go in where it's warm, or at least walk away from the window. And nothing happened, and I still felt like I was outside in a snowbank looking in. But everybody said to me, just try to be a good AA. Just try to, to work a good program and work with others. And I was trying and feeling terrible. But around this time, it's starting to pick up a little bit. And I'll tell you, I was, was very curious about the thing that people were calling God and higher power. I was coming to believe because I had heard so many stories by this time that even me, as arrogant and as unwilling to listen as I was, was beginning to hear something. I heard miracle after miracle. And I just looked around. I mean, look at the clientele. Look who we are. Look. I came in from the garage, and we come together, and we heal one another. We raise one another from the dead. And I knew, given who we are, that, that just can't happen. And I was so serious. I was at that point. I had been taken to that point now, I realized, by, by participating in the program, by taking the steps. But one day, I just said to outer space, if you're there, I'd like to get to know you. And if you're really there... I am willing to go on any path you took from me. I have come to believe that it was the fellowship, the program acting in my life, that made me say the second part of that request, namely, I'll go on any path you take from me. What I really wanted was, if you're there, I want a mystical experience. Prove yourself. Give me a sign. And something in Alcoholics Anonymous had made me add that next thing, and I'll go on any path you pick for me. And much later, I, I realized that God will come in and meet me on God's terms. God will take me there. 
that I have to be willing to stay on that path that God picks for me. When I said that, I knew that I had signed a mighty big contract, and it turned out to be. I felt like there was a lot of inner rearrangements, like God with a celestial jackhammer. And, uh, and it was just the, the influence of the group conscience, the fellowship. And here I was in this big, empty specific group, Hansi yelling at me, friendship, gossip, stress, hurt feelings. Things with a little touch. It's just a scalpel. And then it was always God, my friends, with handkerchiefs to wipe the tears away. And that was God doing surgery in the Greek conscience, I do believe. That was the sixth and seventh step for me. And I was made into a being that could receive huh, that radiance, that love that God is always emanating in the universe, some within and some without. And how it happened was after I had taken the step to the best of my ability and had gone through a couple of years of this kind of psychic surgery that the fellowship brings about. One day the veil parted and it was <gasps> it was that moment where I experienced that profound love from a higher power. And it impressed the hell out of me because I had come from such a position of atheism and I never really believed that anything was there and it was revealed to me. And I went crashing back into AA meetings saying, let me tell you about this, this realization. Ah, I'd almost get started. And if I was talking to a newcomer, it was like the days of old where they would turn and form another system. It weird. But if I was talking to an old timer, they'd just smile and nod and say, yes, it's Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, it was obvious to them. But it was a big deal for me, and it was a safety net. And, and I could then go out into life with a kind of courage that I'd never had before. That was the security that I had always longed for and looked for me. And there it was. It's given me uh, courage finally to come back when somebody missed their voice. The funny thing, Classy is my sponsor now. And uh, every now and then he raises his voice. And without the safety net, without all oh, this conditioning and alcoholics anonymous, I'd walk away. But I don't have to walk away anymore. Not bad to walk away, but it's so much better to hang in and drink of life fully because I miss out on so much when I walk away. There's always surprise if I hang in. And, uh, and after the amazing spiritual awakening, it's, the message was, go out and practice these principles in all your affairs that stay tied to the fellowship. I had a lot of trouble letting go of the guilt I felt about the kids, and I had to make living amends to them until one day I could see that uh, I just looked at them. And I could see that we're all children of God. Perfect children, perfect parents, perfect God, perfect lives. I may have thought that I damaged them. But that was then, and now is now. And I should not allow that guilt to diminish this day. Let's go out and play together. Now, I could never have come around to that intellectually. I had to be brought to that point of willingness to let go of the guilt by making living amends to my kids. And it took five or six years before that guilt was gone. 
I was getting acquainted with my husband, too. Alcoholics Anonymous has worked so steadily in my life that I never experienced it happening. When I know it's happened is when I am sharing with a newer person, I find myself listening. And a lot of times when I talk, women come up and they say, I feel terrible about my children. I drank while I was pregnant. I took them when they were little. And I begin talking to them and I say, I used to feel that way. And let me tell you my story. And then I realize I'm using the past tense. I used to feel that way. That's how I knew the guilt was gone when I was using the past tense. And likewise, women say, I live in a home. I feel like there's a big wall between me and my husband. I try to talk about the relationship, but he says things that hurt my feelings. And I just laugh and I say, God forbid, don't talk about the relationship. Get involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. And ask God to let you go in where it's warm, or at least walk away from the window. And then I say, I felt that way when I was new. And then I realized that after enough years went by, I was able to allow my husband to rip off his scientist shoes. And, uh, and I got to know him as Bill, fellow child of God. And uh, he's been getting acquainted over the years. And we celebrated 35, many of them happy years together, how uh, this past year. And uh, that's a pretty amazing thing. We climbed mountains together and played with the kids together. I never thought that was possible. And when the time was right, the director at the old lab called and asked me to come back to work. Now, I was living in San Francisco, and I'd gone up there, and he called from Los Angeles. And when he asked that, I, just, I said, they said there'd be a knock at the door. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, the lab here in Los Angeles, and you're up in San Francisco. We tried to get your phone number, but... Uh, and we had planned to come back down, the timing was right, and there I was, working in that place. I thought that that would never be possible. But I have come to know that God meets me where I am. I sank pretty far into the depths of our disease, so God has had to do a little bit more work on my behalf. Um, God has always done for me what I can't do for myself. God, I am sure, somehow in a way that I will never understand, orchestrated Marion at my first meeting, orchestrated that against my better judgment and self-will, getting me into the Pacific group, something that intense for an intense person like me. I see that God in that situation when I had no resume, surely, <laughs> or a very bad resume, um, somehow brought his loving influence that I could go back and work in that same place where I did all the damage. Pretty amazing. I even saw my personnel file, and they didn't hold it against me. They just marked that I had left back in uh, 66 or 67, and cause of leaving, they wrote, sickness. <laughs> yes, I got that one. <laughs> and, uh, and I've worked ever since. A danger, of course, has been my wanting to make work into God. I revert to that scientist mentality, uh, making a job into God. Three letters and O in the middle, so you can see it's easy to confuse. And it's been a great danger for me, but thank God I stayed tied enough into the fellowship to get drawn back. And, um, and the longer I stay there, the less important that is. It's not important how I make my living. It's important that I go out and earn a living for God. 
go out and serve in God's world. Turn my will and my life over to God each morning and just try to be a service. Try to be a good AA. As long as I do that, the funny thing is that I feel like finally I could open present number 27. It is the feeling that I open that and I got what I always wanted. And you said, what is it? And I said, I don't know, but I feel like I got it. But, but I was going up there, the Nobel Prize, but I got the Nobel Prize of sobriety along the way. And, uh, and if I could put it into words, I suppose it would be that it's not about being rich or being poor or having a job or not having a job or being sick or being well or any of those things, having a car or a camera. But um, it's about having a sense of purpose, a language that you have given me that unites me to the human race, a loving relationship with you, with my family, with a loving God that I never expected to find, this abundant richness, all here, all for us. And I thank you for it.